Good morning, friends. I'm Keith, if you are new here, and I really enjoy not getting up until this point in the gathering. It doesn't often happen, um, so it's fun to have lots of different people speaking into us this morning. Uh, so, yeah, let's uh, let's hop in. Isaiah 40, 31, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. In Exodus 15, 15, the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. <laughs> the word of the Lord. No, I, I am not talking. I am not talking at all. That's the last thing you're going to hear me say that references any events that might be happening later this afternoon. Uh, but I do, I, I do want to talk um, about the reality of the world around us. And I think uh, Jess's words kind of were a, a fun little introduction into that to not, um, to not lose sight of, of the physical realities um, and where God might be working through them in the little ways and in the big ways. I want to talk about object permanence for a second. Um, I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, but um, Jean Piaget uh, kind of developed this idea, or at least gave name to it, and, and uh, you heard this, this phrase before, object permanence? Okay, so essentially what it means is that when you're really young, if you see something, here we go, if you see something and then you don't see it, you forget it exists, okay? And so... Obviously, when a parent walks out of a room, a baby might cry because they're terrified because the parent has disappeared forever and there is no availability in the child's mind yet to realize that they're actually just on the other side of the wall, okay? So, so babies lack object permanence. And so what you have to do, um, you know, this is why peekaboo is just so gosh darn exciting, <laughs> right? Where'd you go? Here we are. Where'd you go? Over and over again, right? Like, this is why throughout generations, peekaboo still, you know, like, it stands the test of time. Yeah, it holds up. And so, so anyways, um, when we think about, about object permanence, the way to develop object permanence, the way to become aware that even when you don't see something, it's actually still in existence, it's still there, is by repetition and training. You begin to do, you use tools, and you do things to, when something disappears, you make sure that it reappears regularly until someone realizes that it's not going anywhere. Now, obviously, there are massive amounts of <laughs> social implications and developmental implications in this that last well beyond childhood, but that's not what we're talking about today. Um, what we are going to talk about is we're, we're kind of wrapping up pretty much this very interesting, very odd series. I'm like, I've always felt like all, all month long, I'm like, this is one of the most unique things that we've done. But um, we, we kind of springboarded off of a, a, a story in John 4, where Jesus is talking with a, uh, the, she's known as the woman at the well. Um, she's a Samaritan woman, and they get into this big discussion. And hopefully by now we've repeated this story at the beginning of every message for like four weeks. So hopefully it's just like, it's, it's pounded into you by this point. But, uh, but the, the end of the story is the, the thing that hit us, and it's that in the midst of uh, this woman realizing that Jesus is a prophet, at least that's what she thinks, or um, possibly the Messiah, but there wasn't really as much of a concept of that among the Samaritans, but a great prophet who knew things. Um, Jesus changes water into wine and knows things. Um, I think that's a Game of Thrones reference. I didn't actually watch Game of Thrones. Anyways, so he, um, she says to him, 
well, what about this thing about where we worship? She asks him this question because you've said that we can't worship here, or the Jews say this, the Jews say you can only worship here. And Jesus' response is, a time's coming where people won't worship on this place or that place, but they'll worship in spirit and in truth. And in other words, the location and the physics and the physicalness of all of these things will be much more secondary to the heart behind it. And your norms will might maybe not be the same as other people's norms. And so what we've done is we've decided to spend a few weeks unpacking norms within our own traditions and in other traditions, okay? To help us see that maybe there are ways that we often don't understand that other people connect with God, and maybe there's new opportunities for us to move toward God. So we looked at traditions of justice. We looked at traditions of, um, of liturgy a couple weeks ago. Then we looked at traditions of movement two weeks ago. Uh, and so today, uh, I... I want to talk about stuff, which is the least spiritual title ever. <laughs> traditions of what? Traditions of stuff? Traditions of matter? Traditions of things? This is just a, a weird concept. But I want to talk for a, a few minutes, and this is real practical this morning, kind of fun, kind of different, uh, about how things, the physical world, can be incredibly helpful in our discipleship. I'm not talking about accumulating stuff. I'm talking about redeeming and seeing everything around us can be used in a way that actually moves us closer to the Lord. Um, because moving with Jesus is super hard sometimes, right? The idea of, um, of maintaining a relationship with a God that is spirit, a God that is invisible, can be very, very challenging. So spiritually, we often find ourselves in the same mindset as our littlest humans, where we lack spiritual object permanence. If something is not right in front of us, we maybe begin to live like that thing doesn't exist, right? And so in our faith journeys, we often struggle with this exact same reality. This is why the scriptures say, like, dwell on this, bring your mind to these things over and over again, because we sometimes have problems with that. Um, so it's very easy for us to become very compartmentalized people. We can live with this out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality in our own faith, and, uh, and we can lose track of the truth of God's presence and God's goodness, and God's mission, if it's not right in front of us all the time. So I think this takes two forms. There's probably ma many more than that, but I'm just going to hit two forms among us as people back then, forever ago, and right now, uh, when the stress and the pace of life takes over. I think it, it uh, becomes known in two ways. The first one is that, um, that we are forgetful. Goodness, how about this? There we go. All right. So we can be very forgetful as humans. Here we go. Be aware of which finger I'm drawing, please. All right. Do you get what that is? Yeah? Thank you, Kim. All right, good. Okay, so we got a little finger with a knot tied onto it. Um, right, so sometimes we can be very forgetful in our lives. We can just lose track of what we think matters, what we think should matter, and we just kind of forget. We forget God's goodness. And the other thing is that we become distracted. All right? All right, so we become distracted. Do this. Um, I was going to draw a squirrel, but that's out of sight of my, like, pay grade. So, um, so that's supposed to be, what was it? There we go, astigmatism. All right, so we've got some eyes. All right, 
We can be very forgetful and we can become very distracted. A few weeks ago, I shared about how God made us as fully integrated humans. All right, so using our bodies in ways that help connect us with God was important, remember? Uh, we are not disembodied souls, we are integrated beings, integrated humans. And I mentioned that people long ago had uh, some issues with that, right? The Docetists and the Gnostics had this belief uh, at the time of the Apostle John's writings and at the time even of Jesus that argued that Jesus wasn't real because, like, not really real in physical form because God would never demean God's self by getting involved in the physical world like that. The only problem is that over and over in our scriptures, God declares matter and bodies as good. Uh, so as God enters a culture and God enters a physical world in order to redeem it, um, the message line is that everything is redemptive or everything can be redeemed. So maybe even objects and our physical stuff around us can truly draw us toward Jesus. Over the years, this has caused some serious, serious issues in the church. Two primary movements um, really rose up in terms of controversy. In fact, um, the, the one happened with uh, Emperor Leo in the Byzantine Empire in 726 AD, I think it was. And, and so it was called the Iconoclasm. And what happened was the church had used a lot of images of Jesus and other saints within their church walls. And Leo goes and says, this is idolatry. Like, this worship is supposed to be about the spirit, and the, the commandments say don't make a, any graven images of God, and so we got to, like, stop any imagery, any art, anything in our churches. So for a hundred years, it was all banned. And then there was all this movement that said, but, but if it's, like, not an image that's being worshipped, if God has created Jesus in a physical form, and we sometimes use that to draw us toward Jesus, then maybe, like, maybe this is, like, overdoing it? Just a little bit, if something's drawing us toward God, like if we're not actually worshiping it, maybe that's not enough of a risk to just throw everything out. So then it came back, and objects and statues in beautiful art and everything started to come back in. And then we came to Calvin. This was way back now in the 1500s, and Calvin had kind of this resurgence of the fact that anything that is physical is just a distraction in many ways, and so art, once again, used in worship, kind of created all of these problems. So you've got like mobs in the Netherlands in the 1500s going into churches and just literally smashing everything. Just getting rid of any candle holders, uh, paintings on the wall, statues, just smashing them, literally whitewashing an entire, you know, room so that there was nothing, nothing of the physical world. It was just you and your spirit before God. Uh, so, so, it's like a really weird time in the life of the church. Uh, but there's been regular tension with this concept of where the world of matter fits into worship and discipleship. Some churches would suggest that no instruments should be used in worship at all, right? It's too distracting, too many things, right? Strip everything down so it's mostly just a spiritual world disconnected from the physical as much as possible. And I would suggest respectfully that we have come really, really close in any of these movements of throwing the entire baby out with the bathwater. Um, God's people have always understood that we are forgetful. God's people have always understood that we are distracted. And God's people have always used the physical world around us as a tool to help us 
not an additional distraction to avoid. So I want to reflect on two stories within the scriptures that kind of address these, these things and then just get really, really practical with some ideas. Because sometimes it's great if you walk away from a message saying, wow, that was super interesting. And of course, when someone asks you two days later, you're like, I'm not sure what he said, but it was really interesting. I know the stats. I know the stats. Um, yes, and I've done, I've done interviews and I've quizzed people. And then they've asked me and I'm like, I can't remember what I shared on Sunday either. Uh, so, no, no, uh, no judgment. But, but here's the thing. We, we have opportunities to look at the scriptures and maybe come away with some, one really practical thing at the end of one morning that we put into our lives that helps move us toward Jesus. That's a huge win, everybody. <laughs> like, that's a huge win. So, maybe that's our goal today. Uh, all right, so the first story is in Joshua 4. Uh, Joshua, um, one of the narrative stories, narrative books in, uh, in the, the um, First Testament, the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible. And I don't know if you're aware, but there's actually two miraculous water crossing stories in the scriptures. First one, most people are super familiar with. It's during Exodus, and Moses uh, is bringing the people out of Egypt. They've been in slavery, and they're being chased by the Egyptian army, and the sea parts in this crazy moment, and everybody crosses over. And then it comes back and it washes away um, Egypt and their chariots. And God's people are set free and established. All right? And then they wander around in the desert for decades. All right? So, so they go from moving from slavery, but it's a holding time where they haven't actually arrived at the promises of God. They're still homeless. They're still without, without full uh, direction. And it's a time where they have to learn how to trust God in a new way. And there's a lot of ways that you can interpret it, but one of those things is like, you can't just have one of your problems gotten rid of without learning to trust and follow in new ways and have it be healthy. Otherwise, you're just going to return back to the same old habits until you've learned to reorient your entire way of life. So this wilderness time is some of that. It's a time where they follow God in the wilderness. God protects them and guides them through a pillar of fire and smoke day and night. It's a really interesting story, but eventually... Moses' time has, has come and gone, and this new guy named Joshua has taken over the leadership of God's people. And Joshua continues to lead them, and they get to the edge of this land that God has promised them. All right, So that's the whole story, and it's across the Jordan River. So they cross the sea, decades, and then finally get to the Jordan River, and on the other side is the promised land. All right? So that's all you really need to know, except for the fact that when it's time to cross the river, the Ark of the Covenant which was understood to have held the, um, the presence of God, the priests carry this ark out, and what they do is they get to the middle of the river. Well, when, they, when their feet touch the water, it's a river, it's not a sea. So on one side, the water just like builds up and balls up, and then the water downstream just keeps drifting away. So you've just got a one-sided wall. Got it? Instead of a two-sided wall, you just got one-sided wall, and then like the tide's going out on your right. So... What they do is they're told this is going to happen. They bring the Ark of the Covenant. A bunch of guys hold it, stay there. All of God's people cross it. And here's what Joshua is told to do. All right? Um, it says, uh, let's see. So this is in Joshua 3, 14. Um, when the people broke camp, crossed the Jordan, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant ahead of them. Now the Jordan was at flood stage during harvest. Yet as soon as they carried and reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water's edge and the water stopped flowing. Okay. Fast forward to chapter 4. 
When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one, with each, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, right where the priests are standing, and carry them with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, says, Go over, find a stone, I'm paraphrasing here, um, to serve as a sign in the future. When the children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial. Memory. Remember. Forget. Word association, right? Okay. These are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So they did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the the number of tribes, They carried them with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. Right? That's, I mean, to this day, then. Uh, Not now. Um, I mean, I actually didn't do the research. There might be a pile of stones that are like, this is is the altar that Joshua built. So, we have some stones. So, So, what happens is that in the midst of this story, there's a significant movement of God that is happening. God has been faithful in a significant way, and it's changing the story of God's people. And so what they're instructed to do, and what Joshua helps them do, is create something that can mark the moment, and it's something that will be able to last for longer than just the story itself. It's something that... They will be able to pass by and look at that will be a reminder of God's faithfulness in their story. Got it? Because sometimes there are going to be people who don't remember. It said in the story that some of these generations are going to come and they're going to be like, what's that all about? Oh, this is to help us remember that God has been faithful. We need a physical reminder where sometimes when we pass by this place or sometimes when we're struggling, we're actually going to pilgrimage out to this place. And we're going to sit here and we're going to make note of the story that formed these rocks. Because we need to be reminded of things. Because we need sometimes to have physical stuff in our lives that we can look at and say, do you remember that? Do you remember God's work there? Do you remember the faithfulness of God? And so, so it's significant to make stones of remembrance, which is one of the primary ways in the Old Testament that this happened, to build an altar to be a reminder, God has not given up on you to mark moments, to develop object permanence in their lives, okay? God is with you, even if you don't see it every time. God has been with us. He was with us here. He was with us at the beginning when we were slaves in Egypt. In your forgetfulness, God is with you, and God will be with you. So we have these moments, but we also have other moments in the scriptures, and there's this moment that... um, I was looking at this week, and I saw something different and fresh in it that I hadn't thought about before. And it's a pretty familiar story with Jesus. So Jesus is with his disciples, um, and this story is in John, John 13. And, uh, and Jesus is in the upper room. This is the most dramatic section of any of, any of the Gospels um, that we have. The, the middle to latter part of John, of the book of John. When Jesus is in the upper room and then when Jesus is sharing his heart and praying, it's, it's super dramatic. It's, it's very, very intense. So we have this story unfolding where Jesus meets his disciples in the upper room for his final Passover meal. 
Things are happening in Jerusalem, and it's becoming clear that something is coming to culmination in some way. All right? Jesus knows what's about to happen. The disciples don't. But they know that the tension is high, and something's going to go down very soon. All right? The, the pressure from the religious leaders has gotten more and more intense. The divide has gotten stronger. Okay? And so in the midst of this, Jesus knows this is going to be my last time that I spend time with the disciples. Right? And so before the meal comes, he has this moment where he sees a basin in the corner with a pitcher of water. Now, in every single Jewish household, there would be a basin with water and a towel. And that would be used to wash feet when you would come in from a long day. Your feet would be dusty. It was a sign of being refreshed. It was um, a cultural practice at the time. Um, it, was, it was, I mean, it was as normal as if you would come in and visit friends and they'd say, can I take your coat? Okay? But many households would have whoever the lowest one in the household was, a servant or a child or whatever. The lowest one in the household would take this and they would go around and they would wash the feet, okay, of whoever the guests were coming in. So Jesus sees that there's a towel and a basin in the corner, as there always was. And he knows that because they had reserved this room alone, there wasn't anybody else available. So um, it was either going to be one of the disciples or something. And before anybody has a chance to start bickering, they do that later, about like who, who is the most deserving of not doing the foot washing. Jesus takes it himself, right? And so he grabs this basin, and he goes around, and he washes his disciples' feet. And as he's washing his disciples' feet, it causes this great controversy, right? Peter's like, don't wash my feet, you know, like, that's not right. This is, this is not how it should be. And Jesus like, you need to let me do this, otherwise you're never going to, like, understand this movement that I'm starting. And then he's like, well, then wash my whole body. And he's like, dude, calm down. Still not getting it. And eventually... Um, eventually he finishes this and he says to them, he says, listen, I've, I've set for you an example that just as I've washed your feet, you are also supposed to wash one another's feet. All right? This is going to be the mark of who I am and of what my people are. <laughs> Send us out as a people known by love. Final line that we say every single week. So here's the thing. So Jesus takes something in a really significant moment and a significant story. And I've always thought this is a profound story. It's one of my favorite, one of my favorite most, most significant, because right before this it says Jesus was prepared to show them the fullest extent of his love or love them to its greatest end possible. And then it looks like that. But here's the thing. After it all goes down, after Jesus dies, rises, keeps rising, and they're left on their own, they still were involved in their local culture. And can you imagine every single one of the disciples, every single time they entered a house, there's going to be a basin in the corner. And over and over in their lives, they're going to notice this object that used to be an everyday object. It used to just be something that was a part of their lives and a part of their culture. And every single time they see that in the corner, all of a sudden their mind is going to go to, what does it mean for me to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean for me to, to accept Jesus, the God of the world, serving me and then inviting me to live my life as a servant toward others? And so this seemingly neutral object becomes something that when they're walking through life and distracted, brings them back to the focus of what is life supposed to be about, right? By the way, being forgetful and being distracted are like two sides of the exact same coin. I'm just parsing it out. 
because you could say that they forget and then they see it too. But I'm thinking about the day-to-day life and how we can just become distracted with just doing the things that humans are supposed to do, right? It's, I got to take care of work. I need, to, um, I need to, to work out my finances. I, you know, some of us have, have kids, you know, I got to plan with, um, with everything, got to take care of my house or my apartment, and just like life is just normal, and we forget what our ultimate calling is here, and we forget that we are called to be people who practice the image and the character and the servanthood of Jesus every single moment of our lives, and so we need things when we're forgetful about the way God worked to go back to and notice, and we need things when we are distracted to kind of snap us back to what our calling is today in real life, every moment. Um, Interestingly, Jesus continues to do this with the meal that he shares with the disciples. He takes things that had other types of symbolism for the Passover meal, and he imbibes them with renewed symbolism. So all of a sudden, the bread becomes his body, the wine becomes his blood, and Jesus says, when you eat or drink, remember me. Anytime you do this, remember me in, John, in Luke 22. Um, do this in remembrance of me. We have often shortened that into this practice, which I think is appropriate, but my gut has for many years thought that Jesus is kind of saying, listen, every time you eat, <laughs> every time you drink, not just when you do the communion thing, but any time that you feed your body, remember that I've come to bring life to your spirit and your soul every single time. Use and redeem these things. So Jesus takes images, he takes objects, and he brings incredible value to them that bring us back. Think about what would happen if every single time you took a bite of food, there was something in your mind that was triggered to think, oh Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you every hour, I need you. I want to trust you to bring life with your spirit to my hands, just like I need food to bring energy to my hands right? I need your spirit to give me the power to love, just like I need bread so that I can get up and do my work and go about my life tomorrow. Think about how we can be redeemed. So here's something made with hands that they could come back to as a reminder, and here's something normal and ordinary that had fresh value then to refocus them toward the way of Jesus in their daily lives. In different traditions, okay, now we're going to pivot a bit. In different traditions, different physical things are used as pointers, And guess what? All of these things can totally be meaningless. All of them can totally be a source of pride. All of them can be misused in all sorts of different ways. So can grace. And we don't throw that out. So I invite you to think in new levels of creativity about how they can also maybe, instead of just being a source of like, hey, look at this, um, or here's another empty religious practice, how instead they can be filled with value and actually move us um, to, uh, to see the beauty of God. Uh, Jewish people, um, they use something called tefillin. Any, anybody heard that word before? Yeah, uh, it's often translated or, or used as phylacteries because of the, the transliteration, but a lot of Jewish people are really annoyed by that because phylacteries is not what, it's, it's weird. But tefillin is the appropriate and honoring way to talk about these. And, and tefillin are small little leather pouches that have, um, that have parchment inside from a bunch of the scriptures from the first five books of the Bible, okay? They are reminders of God's love, and in, um, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, they are told, actually it happens like four or five times throughout the scriptures, but they're told to, to tie 
God's word onto their foreheads, bind them on their foreheads and their arms. And so during times of prayer, they have these leather straps with these tiny little, it's like a mini briefcase, and they wrap them around their arm and they wrap them around their, their head. And, uh, and, and they're used to constantly say, I want to keep the heart of God and the word of God close to me as I go about my life. I don't want to lose track of the promises of God, right? Uh, and so, so there's really, really beautiful value in the physical world that they find there. Um, some of you and some of our friends have actually gotten tattoos on your body that, that is a significant reminder about a significant spiritual moment or a truth. Um, and by the way, I always thought it's an interesting practice to say, if you were going to get a tattoo, what would it be and why? Because it's something that you're going to see a lot. And so, you know, I, um, if I ever would get a tattoo, I think the, the prayer of, of St. Francis is the, the, literally the word that has always, you know, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. That's, where, that's what I would do. Um, but, but what would you do? And, and, and do you understand? Because, again, part of this is breaking down our judgmentalism, right? Do you understand how for some people that could be incredibly beautiful? It's probably some of you in here where you have these, these moments that you want to mark and you never want to forget and you need to see something regularly. So, so people get tattoos um, for, for that. You know, some people make and keep art in some way. You're going to hear about that in just a second. Um, but there's, there's practices of creating something that you can look back on. Every Lent, uh, which is coming up, since we moved into our new house, which has woods in the back, I go out in the back with just hand tools, and I cut down some branches and some vines, and I, and I lash together a cross, because it's a very interesting practice for me, and then I plant it in our backyard by our flower bed. <laughs> Hopefully, like, the neighbors don't think I'm trying to be super spiritual, because only two of our neighbors can see it, but it's not like out front, um, but, but what it is, is it's this moment for me to be constantly reminded during the entire season of Lent leading up to the death of Jesus of the sacrificial nature of a God willing to give everything. It's really interesting for me to do that. It's really meaningful. And then I make sure I take it down at the end because it loses its meaning if it just stays up forever, often in my life, personally. Um, clothes are an interesting, interesting thing. Here, I want to talk about it in two different ways. Number one, I want to talk about um, Sunday best cultures. I don't know if any of you grew up in a church where, where you know, there were, you were expected or it was just the culture to wear really nice clothes. Um, obviously, I don't personally subscribe to that, right? I mean, t-shirt, this, like, this is like a non-jeans week for me. It's very odd. But, but here's the thing. Many of us, me included, one of the, the elements of going to a church gathering and wearing whatever I want is a reminder that I do not have to dress up before God, right? That, that like, this is part of normal life. Life with God, life with Jesus together. There are no barriers. There's no need for me to, to, do, to jump through hoops, right? And so, therefore, I can get super judgy about people that dress up for church. Like a lot of my brothers and sisters in, um, in historic black culture churches, for one. Um, like people who have Orthodox or um, Catholic backgrounds often, whatever. And here's the thing. I remember my, uh, my grandmother coming and visiting our church uh, that I was a part of in high school in the beginning of college. And we had this conversation afterwards because she was super, super hung up on the fact that one of uh, the musicians in the worship team had ripped jeans. And like really, really had a problem with it. 
And I, of course, was very, very self, you know, righteous about this, of like, listen, Grandma, like, they love Jesus, and you do not have to dress up for that. So for me, a certain type of clothing was meaningful. But for her, to dress in a certain way meant that you were actually intentionally bringing what you had to God, like a wedding. Because I would never go to a wedding in t-shirt and jeans and then be like, I don't have to dress up for this. Like, I love you guys no matter what. And some people look at this and say, this is an opportunity for me to, to move toward, toward true celebration. And there's even clothes that help me move toward that. Now, that can be a source of pride, just like my ripped jeans can. Right? But the point is that these things have the potential to either point us toward God or not to point us toward God. And they have the potential to make us judgmental <laughs> or to make us more gracious because we can see the beauty in each of these different expressions. And so I think that we have a responsibility to keep moving in these ways. Within the Catholic Church and um, a lot of Orthodox uh, traditions, there are things called vestments. So many of you, I know, have a background with that. And again, to me, as a, as a spiritual leader and a pastor, I have often been like, this, this whole idea of the priest being so covered in all these robes, all different, like, we are together as pilgrims on this spiritual journey. I am not separate from you. I can very much be like, that's why I don't do the, you know, the robes. And, I mean, outside the fact that it would weird all of you out, too. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. All of that can, can be exactly what I just said. The idea of, of dressing up. Thanks for following that, Sean. I'm going to talk about Chasuble in just a second. Um, the idea of, of, of that can be very freeing. But if you look at the history of why certain vestments are worn in different traditions, it's incredible. Now, people can lose sight of that. People can lose sight of that all the time, and it can lose its meaning. But this chasuble here, that's called chasuble, and um, a, a Catholic priest has about six or seven different items that they put on. They have a, a special collar that they put on. They have something that goes over their one shoulder, and this goes on top of everything, okay? It's called a chasuble. And when they put the chasuble on, they are supposed to have it embody the spirit, okay, of Colossians 3.14, over all of these things, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. That's the meaning of this thing. How great would it be that if I had something, whether it's this little microphone or whatever, that every single time I put it on before I shared with you, that my final reminder was above all things, put on love. That's that's amazing. That's exactly the spirit that I want. Now, that's 575 bucks. I disagree with that. <laughs> but the concept, do you understand? There's so many things that can be redeemed, that can take on value in beautiful ways. Um, seemingly silly things, like, like keychains, can be helpful, like bracelets. When I was in, in like my teenage years, the WWJD thing was a huge fad. But I'll admit it was helpful to me sometimes by wearing a, a bracelet that said, what would Jesus do? Now, that came and went. And so when Nick Foles won the Super Bowl five years ago and he's wearing a WWJD bracelet as an adult, I think it probably had real meaning for him. I don't think he was, like, living it up from his 14-year-old days. I think it probably meant something to him, even though that had kind of run its course for my life. And so, so the, the point is that we can have things that point us and remind us, but they're going to be different for all of us. Um, quotes on a wall or on your dashboard 
something that brings you back. Our phones are maybe one of the, I'm sorry, Bethany got me new shoes that she found at the thrift store, and they're squeaky, and it's driving me crazy. I like them. Not a criticism against her, but I might have to do socks next time I wear them. Um, Speaking of which, distracted. (laughs) I don't even know what I was saying. Oh, yeah, lock screens. Yes, our phones are such a source of distraction for us, right? But we can also, because they draw our attention, we can use these things to draw our attention towards something good and beautiful. So what if you take a picture that is for your lock screen that brings you back to Jesus in some, in some way? Like, there's all of these opportunities that we have. So, yes, that's just, just a reminder how weirdly judgmental we can get about all of this stuff if it's not something that jives with us. And we need to learn to make space and just maybe live a better way than critiquing, especially if some of you have gone through deconstruction. It is super easy to just judge all sorts of people who would do something that it feels like, you know, I don't, I don't need that. That's, you know, that's, 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 for, that's for you. That's, you know, your t- I, I don't like, you know, I don't need to wear T-shirts like that. I have wonderful T-shirts that I like to wear. I have other T-shirts that don't do it for me. And some of them have messages. Some of them have scriptures. Some of them just say love. And some of them have nothing to do with that. But I've learned that, like, because of the culture I came from, I can do, like, the whole, oh, the youth group T-shirt, nice. Like, like, we just all have these things. I'm just, I'm just, like, outing myself that sometimes I'm a jerk about that stuff. And maybe you are, too, but I'm not going to put that on you. That's for you to choose. Okay, so uh, Fred and, and Sabrina, come here. I just want to ask you, uh, so I became aware of, of two simple practices that Fred and Sabrina use, and um, we're just going to do this for, like, one minute. Yeah, just come on up on stage, and you can just stand beside me here. And because when I was, when I learned about them, I was like, ooh, that kind of fits with forgetful, and that kind of fits with distracted in terms of, of the physical world. Yes, Sabrina's, Sabrina's forgetful, and I don't even have to tell you that Fred's distracted, right? I mean, if we just start talking about the Eagles, we just lose track of anything that was happening before that. Okay, so Sabrina, what do you do every year? You have a practice. So I'm one of those word people. You guys know the people who like pick a word for the year that they kind of want to like focus on? Yeah, it's... It's on social media. I'm not making it up. So um, I don't think there's anything magical about it, but I do like to look back at the end of a year and kind of think, okay, so where have I ended up? And then where do I feel like my focus is going to be for the next year? And then I want to do something to kind of nail that down and help me remember. And I do feel like God guides that process because I pray about it and I, I want his guidance in it, you know? But I'm not a visual person. Jess mentioned that she's discovered she's a very visual person. I am a very much not visual person, and I'm not a visual artist, Mm. and I never have been. And I'm a word nerd. I'm all about words. So I initially, the first several years I did this, I would journal about my word for the year, you know? And then I felt like that's too normal. I need to do do something, Mm. right? And so because I'm not visual and not an artist, but I like words, I create word art. So once a year in January, whatever my word is, I do something, something with it. And, you know, this is not like, like art art. It's like my word. And this year my word is stack. Fred kept trying to read it top to bottom. It doesn't make any sense that way. Just, just so you know. Yeah. Kill all cats. <laughs> and, you know, for me, all of these boxes are specifically symbolic, like I thought through the various things that are the weird, Mm. unconnected pieces of my life that need to be stacked appropriately and prioritized appropriately, you know. Um, 
couple years ago, it was hello, because I felt like I needed to get to know who I was, because God was starting something new in my life. And so I said hello into my phone in the little voice thing, and then I grabbed the little sound wave picture of it. So, you know, so it's not like, oh, I want to create icons for the church that will be beautiful, yeah. right? I just want to remember you guys. Yeah. And so, and it provides an opportunity. Thanks, Sabrina. It provides an opportunity then to look back, right, and to say, oh, this is where I was sensing. Where, where, where did I see growth? Where did I see God meet me in these moments? Where did I see God bring new fruit from, from these, these themes that I decided to lean into in my life? Yeah, the process, so the process of doing it each year is equally meaningful than even going back to look at it. Right. It's, it's making something to mark the moment. So then the memory even sits there better. Okay, so Fred, you have developed a practice or, or have adopted a practice that, um, now you grew up Catholic and didn't love that background. Okay, but you do something that from the outside looks very Catholic by people who don't actually know what you do. So what, what have you started doing over the last few years with your prayer life? Okay, do you guys remember during COVID, we had that uh, Zoom class for prayer? Okay, and uh, before we prayed, we did a two-minute silence and meditation and all that. And uh, I couldn't make it through two minutes without my getting distracted or my, my mind wandering. So uh, I was talking to Dwayne about it at a breakfast, and he said, what I do is I, I have these prayer beads, and uh, it kind of helps me keep my mind on track, you know, uh, focus and concentration. So I said, okay. So I said, Sabrina, hey, pick me up some uh, prayer beads. Anyway, uh, Kim tried to give me a pair that were, like, uh, really girly. <laughs> Not that I <laughs> – I said, come on, Kim. Anyway, so um, – yeah, so, as I pray and do my two-minute meditation, and my mind starts wandering, when my fingers touch the wooden beads, brings my concentration back to Jesus hmm. and my focus. So, hmm. so do they? Is so t specifically? Tell me how you do. They have different representations, or is it just a visual of like the, no, it, the it, cross? It, it does. I I pray some certain uh, prayers, not the Hail Mary, because <laughs> you know it's uh, sacrilegious. <laughs> We don't want to do that. But, uh, we just yeah. talked about not judging other people. Right. I know. Anyway, yeah. yeah. I, uh, and, some, and sometimes mm. I actually use for people that are um, in bad health or mm. suffering or dying or whatever, and I'll just huh. use okay. one of each bead would be a different person yeah. that I'm praying for. So. Yeah. yeah. And so, thanks, Fred. So there's this, it's such a simple thing. But for certain minds and opportunities, thanks to both of you. Um, for, for certain minds and certain ways of being wired, we each have different things that if we, if we do them and use them right, they draw us toward God and we should not be afraid or, or reluctant to adopt things that do that. So in all of this, in all of this, I like, and this has been sitting with me all week, I like the concept that the point is to point, right? In any of this stuff, the, the point of it all is to find things that meaningfully point us back constantly to Jesus. The point is to point, right? 
And so that can be done with stuff that we have around the house. It can be done by deciding that when we do the dishes, those are our opportunities for praying for somebody in your life. Each time you draw, uh, do a new dish, each cups, just we'll just do cups and glasses, right? You know, it can be these things that we adopt no matter what. The point is to point, right? Paul, Paul says in Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, po- being pointed constantly, right, toward Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Whatever you're doing, does it help you keep your eyes on Jesus and his kingdom? If yes, great. If not, don't do it right? This is about discernment. So the big question is, how do we discern what is helpful or not helpful for us? Does it draw you to Jesus? Great. It's helpful. Does it not? Let it go. Okay. Um, One example for me is our crosses. Whoops. How many of you recognize these? How many of you have one somewhere around? Okay. So on Palm Sunday, we take palm branches and we fold them into these crosses, and you take it with you. And for me during Lent, it's often a really meaningful reminder, once again, of the opportunity to trust Jesus with my own human frailty, to remember the reality of suffering of other people, and to remember the sacrificial nature of God. But inevitably, it gets stuck in my cup holder, and by July, the thing has no meaning and value in my life. And I have a ton of them around because I have all the extras. So I have to, like, purge because it's just not helpful. And it's never going to be meaningful if it's always there in the way it is. So I remove it because it's not helpful always. It doesn't always point me toward Jesus. But when it does, I'm really thankful for it. So, like, this is the beauty of, of doing whatever we want. Like, we live in a faith that is full of freedom. So I, I want you to think about that. Um, one quick story, and then, and then we're going to um, have just a, a moment. I'll just throw the dialogue questions up for you to think. But... Um, you know, most of you know, I'm, I run stupid long distances, and, um, and part of being an ultra runner is that in races, you have times where you are just alone for two hours of the race, in the woods, just on your own. And so the, the race directors use what we call confidence flags or confidence markers, and that means even if you're not at an intersection, every couple of hundred yards to maybe every quarter mile, they'll just take an orange ribbon and just tie it to a little branch. And what it is, is if you happen to lose focus or you're not sure where the trail goes, you just see it and it helps remind you of where you're going and keeps you on track, right? And there are some times where I'm fully aware of the trail and I'm zoned in. They're not that helpful. And there's other times where, you know, when the hallucinations start and stuff like that, where you're really helpful to see the ribbons. And sometimes you see more ribbons than are there. It's happened once. Um, but, But hopefully you just actually see the real ribbons. But the point is that they point to you. The point is to use things that point you in the right direction, and there's beauty there. Um, now, we're not talking about over-spiritualizing things. We're not talking about um, living in this Christian subculture all the time so that we can look and sound and feel more spiritual than other people. That's bogus, but we are talking about embracing tools that direct us toward the heart of Jesus. So um, our goal in conversations like this is simple. We want you to appreciate the diversity of how God's people can connect with Jesus and express themselves. We want to invite you to consider trying new tools that will enhance your connection to Jesus and your love for those around you. And we want you to keep moving beyond cynicism or judgmentalism of practices that are not your own norms. All right? So these tools are a gift when we struggle with object permanence in our spiritual life. Here's a couple questions. All right. So a couple questions that might be helpful for you this week. Because we're late, we're just going to let you sit with these. And if you have meal communities, you can chat or family members or friends, grab somebody even right afterwards here. What items or images have you found 
that draw you toward Jesus when you're forgetful or distracted. So maybe share, share some ideas. I have this, just like what Fred and Sabrina did. And maybe how are you being drawn to use things around you to point you toward Jesus in fresh ways? So what's a new idea? What's one thing you can try out this week? You know, maybe you're like, you know what? Every time I put my belt on before I come to church, I'm going to like read about the armor of God, my calling to live in righteousness and justice. I'm going to put on my belt of righteousness. I don't know. You can read Ephesians about that. Um, but who knows what it's going to be? Put in a new practice. Tie a string around your finger. Write in marker. Help us be known. Help us be a people known by love. You know, whatever the, might, the, the case might be. All right? And, uh, and embrace that. So let's just pray for a moment, and then we're going to share in this symbolic act of being pointed toward Jesus by redeeming the bread and the cup. Lord, uh, I I invite you, we invite you to bring to our mind the fact that the world around us is full of opportunities to remember and to sharpen our focus on your love. Help us figure out the right ways practically so that we might keep our eyes and our heart focused razor sharp on you as the author and the refiner of our faith. Um, Just give us discernment in real practical ways so that we can walk around this week with hearts tuned in just a shade more than they have been. Amen.